Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. Good morning. We're going to take up our offering and then uh, we're going to get to the message. We're going to take communion at the end of service today, um, after the message. But um, one thing I want us to be thinking about, even during the message I'm about to preach, is that Communion is a reminder of the body of Jesus broken for us and the blood of Jesus shed for us and the new covenant that it brought and, and the way that it made into the Father through a new and living way, through the tearing of his flesh. You know, um, well, we'll talk about that at the end. But it's not just like, oh, we do this because it's this Sunday. It's not just, oh, this is what we do because it's tradition. It's something that we're doing that is reminding us of what he's done for us. And we do it over and over again. He says, every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And then he heads to a cross. And then he's raised from the dead. And so we celebrate what was done to him for us, but we also celebrate what was done for us through him. And that he's not dead still. He's not still laying in a grave. That he's alive. He's risen from the dead. And that he sits at the right hand of the Father and ever lives to make intercession for us. And, um, so yeah, we're going to pass the baskets real quick. God, I just thank you for blessing the offering today. I thank you, God, that, that we can never outgive you, Father. And that, that, that everything we have is yours. God, it all comes from you, every good and perfect gift. And so, Father, as we just give back a part of what you've blessed us with, we pray that you would bless it, God. That you would expand it, multiply it. Uh, that it would accomplish so much more in your hands than it ever could in ours, God. We pray that it would be good soil, God, where we give this money, that everywhere it lands would produce fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to talk there. Uh, it's a super familiar parable. I, I love when God shows something. This message actually was birthed to me about two years ago. Um, it came from a conversation that I was having with my wife, and she just casually mentioned um, something. She may just made one little statement, and that thing has gnawed at me for two years. Um, and so finally, I feel like I'm ready to preach the, the message that it sparked. But you guys have that stuff happen where like someone just casually says something to you, and it just sticks with you, and you just can't get that thought out of your head, and you just kind of keep thinking about it over and over. And then all of a sudden, it's like you're reading through Scripture innocently, and it just you see it. And then once you see it, you can't unsee it. And, and that's how it was for me with this. But um, We've been talking a lot of just about who we are in Christ and, and the, 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 the idea that we're a new creation in him and what that means in the gospel. And uh, I remember at the end of last year, 2018, Zach um, and I were talking and he said, so, so what do you think for the coming year? And I said, I just feel like God has really pressed in my heart to really make sure that the DNA of our church with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the simplicity of what it is to be born again, a new creation, is so imprinted in our hearts and in our minds, so that as new people come, it's not just a message that they're hearing, it's a life that we all are living that's imparted to people, and so that we actually carry this gospel. It's not something that you say, oh, if you come to my church, you'll hear it, which is true, but it's if you hang out with me, if you spend time with me, what's in my heart is going to come out of my mouth, and that's going to be the gospel of Jesus. That's, that's what it's supposed to be like. Like, this is to encourage each other, to stir each other up in love and good deeds, you know, to celebrate together, to worship and, and, and be together and, and build relationship and all that. But truthfully, like, the hope of glory is Christ in you. It's not Christ in your church. 
It's not Christ in your pastor or Christ in the spiritual person that you know that you're friends with. It's Christ in you that's the hope of glory to the world. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. He comes into the world. He's the light, and then he passes what he is. He takes who he is, and he puts it inside of us, and he says, now you're the light of the world, a city on a hill. And so, um, and that was just, uh, we've been talking a lot about the difference that that makes when we understand who we are in Christ and we truly believe that we're a new creation, born again, that all things passed away and behold, everything has become new. And now we live in a way that we've never lived before because we have a new reason for being. I'm not alive for me anymore. I was alive for myself for a long time. Everything that I did was motivated by me. I was selfish. You think about it. You don't, no one had to teach you how to be selfish. You go to the nursery and you watch the fall of man. You do. You go in there and hang out with those kids. If you aren't working anywhere in the church or serving anywhere in the church, go sign up to work in kids' church. You'll see the fall of man play out before your very eyes. Because sometimes there's only one toy and there's two kids. And the fall of man shows up. Mine. Or even worse, one kid has a toy and another kid decides they have something that I want. And if I want something, there is no reason I shouldn't have whatever I want. And I'll do whatever it takes to get what I want, even if it means at the expense of another. No one taught you that. You were born into that. That's why you had to be born again. That's why you had to become a new creation. That's why you had to take the spirit of the world that was inside of you, that was enmity to God, and put the spirit of God inside of you so that the grace to live the life that you're called to live was actually available. It's not him in heaven with his arms crossed watching to see if you're going to get it right or not. It's him in heaven believing that the grace that he's made available to you is enough to transform your life and allow you to walk in the manner that he called you to walk. And so I said, those who claim the name of Christ must in this life walk as he walked. That's a high challenge and a high calling. And if he makes that without the grace being available and the Spirit of God being available to live inside of you, to walk that out, it's absolutely impossible. It's frustrating. But he says he's not a frustrating father. He tells us not to frustrate our children. So if he's asking us as fathers not to frustrate our children, how much more than he being a good father is he not frustrating his children by demanding and requiring things of them that are impossible? So that means that everything he's called us to, he's made a way for us to actually live. He's not in heaven going, oh my goodness, they thought I was serious. (laughs) He's just not doing that. He's not out to frustrate you. He's not out to, so so we've been talking just a lot about that. And I was thinking, the the subject I want to talk about today was was forgiveness. And uh, I was just thinking like everything that God does for us is supposed to transform us to a place where we become that. Like, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, you know, and it says love, joy, and peace, and it lists all the fruit of the Spirit. But it's not that we try to, to do love. It's we become love because the Spirit of God is inside of us, and he's producing love, which is a fruit of the Spirit of God living inside. So our response to people is loving, not because we have a checklist that says we should be loving, or because we're trying to prove something to him. He doesn't, we don't wake up in the morning with a checklist of like, God, I'm going to prove today that I do know you by the things that I do. No, he says, the things that you do today, they'll prove that you know me. 
See, we get that backwards and we start trying to work our way to something that we're actually already in. And if you live from that place rather than for that place, you'll live better on accident than you ever could on purpose. Because you're not striving to try to do, you realize you've become and all you're doing flows from your being. Right? So, so think about this. You can, you can find the example of this when Jesus... I mean, everything we talk about, it's, it's, it's got to be scriptural. You can see this with Jesus. He's getting ready to go out into the world and begin his ministry. On earth, we wait till somebody does something, and then we judge whether it was good or bad, and we say, I'm proud of you based on them doing good, or, well, I'll do better next time. Or sometimes we might even tell people we're disappointed in them because of the way that they acted or the way they responded or what they did, and let them know that they didn't live up to our standard and expectation. God doesn't do that with Jesus. Jesus hasn't gone out and done anything in ministry yet. He gets anointed by the Spirit of God. It comes upon him, and God says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What's he saying? This is my son, and I'm proud of him. He's about to go out and start his ministry, and he starts from the place of knowing the Father's approval rather than starting without it, trying to work towards it. His approval's on your life. You can see it because he sent his son to die on a cross for you. That meant that he thought you were worth the life of his son before you did anything right. In this, we know love, that while we were yet sinners, he's not once you cleaned up your act and started doing the things he asked you to do, then he decided, okay, I'll send my son. And he said, listen, long before you even realized you were doing something wrong, you didn't even know what you were doing was wrong sometimes. You were dead in your sins. Like, you want to talk about dead? Like, that's dead. That's living in sin and not even realizing what I'm doing is sin. So while you're dead in your sins, he sent his son. Why? Because he believed there was more to you than the way that you were living and what you were giving yourself to in that moment. And he believed that if he sent his son and made a way back into his presence and he put his spirit inside of you and gave you a new heart and, and, and a new reason for being, that you'd live so much greater and up to your potential than ever if he sat there and said, you know, this is where I am and this is where you are. And if you want to get here, this is all you have to do to get here. No, he says, this is where you are. This is where I am. So I'll come there. We used to say in the Old Testament, who can ascend the hill of God but he that has clean hands and a pure heart? No one could ascend the hill of God with clean hands and a pure heart. So God came down off the mountain and died for us so that we could have a pure heart and our hands could be cleansed by his blood. Why? Because he realized man can never work their way to me, so I'll go to them and make the way. And when we understand that, like things should change. It should change the way we live. It should change the why behind that. Like when Jesus gives something to us, it's supposed to not only like change us, but it's supposed to become part of who we are so that we now have that. Like he said, my peace I give you. That means you carry the peace of God. That means every situation you walk into, you carry the same peace that he carried. That means you can actually release the peace of God into a situation. And rather than make it worse, you can actually bring the calm to the storm. How many times do you walk into a situation, be honest with ourselves, and we walk into a situation where somebody has a storm going on in their life, and rather than releasing the peace of God, we jump in and make the storm worse. And we think we're doing them a favor by defending them and telling them how bad the other person is and taking sides. And all we're doing is proving that we're still alive for us because we put ourselves in their shoes and we think, well, if I was them, this is how I would respond. And so we encourage them in kind. I mean, not you guys. When I say us, I mean me and the people watching on the live stream and the podcast and all that stuff. None of us would ever do that. And so I was, 
I was thinking about forgiveness. You realize, and we'll get to that in a second, I guess, but Moses says to God, he says, show me your glory. And what does God say? He says, I'll let my goodness pass before you. Moses says, show me your glory. He says, you want to see my glory, Moses? No man can see me and live, but I'll let my goodness pass before you. But first I have to hide you. First I have to put you in a place where my goodness can pass before you without killing you. And he puts him in this rock and he brings his goodness and his goodness passes before. And Moses can barely stand it, barely bear it. And then you realize that in Colossians it says that Christ in you is the hope of glory to the world. Christ in you is the hope that the world will see the goodness of God. And even people that don't know what they want, like Moses knew when he asked God, let me see your glory, people want to see the goodness of God, the glory of God. It says in Habakkuk 2.14, it says, um, a little detour real quick, it says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And the word knowledge there is yada, which means to know or ascertain by seeing. And then Colossians says that Christ in you is the hope of glory. So God says, there's a day coming where people will know my goodness, my glory, by seeing it. And then Colossians tells us that Christ in us is the hope of that word that was spoke by God, that his glory would be seen by people everywhere on the earth. And then you realize, like, something's different. I'm not just saying a prayer to go to heaven. I'm actually becoming a carrier of the glory of God. And he had every belief that I would actually release that into the earth so that people could see what he's like by my life lived under the leading of his spirit. That's amazing. That's a big deal. That's like I get up every day and now I actually have a purpose and a reason. When I walk into the grocery store, when I walk into the restaurant, or when I go into the school, I'm not just there to spectate. I'm not just there to get my needs met and do the things that I came to do. I actually walk in fully aware of the fact that I carry the glory of God inside of me. And there's every opportunity that possibly there's someone there who's been praying, God, let me see your goodness. And God says, you want to see my goodness? Go to the store at 1230. I'll bring my goodness and let it pass before you. And in you walk. That should excite us. (laughs) Are you guys awake? Are you sure? (laughs) Like that should be an exciting thing that there's people out there and they don't maybe don't even know to pray that. But the longing of their heart is to see the goodness of God. And so there's this unprayed prayer in their heart that they don't even know what to pray. They didn't grow up in a Christian home. They didn't grow up going to church. They're searching for something because deep inside of every man is this desire to know him. And so without even realizing it, there's a cry in their heart of God, let me see your goodness. And God says, all right, I'll make my goodness pass before you. Go to Taco Bell. At 11.30 tonight, and I'll send David Pearson, and my goodness will pass before you. Are you in Matthew 18? I guess I'm saying that to say this, that everything he extends to us is an invitation to become that. Everything that he extends to us is an invitation to become that. So when he gives us peace, we can actually become peaceful. 
It's not something we carry for other people. It's something that we actually become because then what I have, I give. Right? So everything is extended. So, and, and, and the thing that got me thinking about this whole thing, I said that the, the, the sentence that Patty told me one time, she said this real, real subtly. We were just walking and talking, and she said, you know, I'm afraid sometimes that forgiveness is taught with selfish motivation. That was it. She just went back to whatever it is that she, we were talking about. And, but that started eating at me in, in, like, in the best way, just irritating me of like, man, there's truth in that somewhere. I got to find it. I got to dig it out. I got to discover what it is that, and why there's a selfish motivation. So with that in mind, turn to uh, Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. says this. You guys all know this story. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how, many, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he didn't have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had in repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a 100 denarii. And when he seized him, he began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to torturers so that until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive your brother from your heart. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's alive today. God, that it's not just words on a page that we read, that we, we make a part of our life, God, that it actually changes who we are as we see you. I pray, God, that as I speak today, it would be from your spirit. Father, just speak through me. Let your spirit flow through me. Let our ears be open to hear, our minds to understand, and our hearts to receive all that you have for us, God, in Jesus' name. So Peter comes to him, and, and I think sometimes the disciples wanted to show off a little bit. I do. I, I mean, you know, it's not like they were perfect. They just hung out with the one who was. And so every time they did something that wasn't perfect, it was really obvious. You know, Lord, should we call down fire? <laughs> Jesus doesn't say it, but he looks at him, and I know what he's thinking. Like, you want to kill everyone in that town? You don't understand what spirit you're of. Lord, we saw a man casting out demons, and he wasn't one of us, so we told him to stop. Don't forbid him. Whoever's not against us is for us. Miracles can't be done in my name without people believing. So Peter comes to him, and he says, Lord... How many times shall I forgive my brother in a day? Seven? I think what he's saying is, God, I've got a pretty good handle on this thing. I'm going to show you how, how, how softened my heart has become. I'm willing to do seven times a day if someone was to forgive me. 
And, and he puts a number on it because I think in Peter's thinking, there is at some point an end to the forgiveness that is to be offered to somebody, especially if it's the same person and especially if it's the same day and especially if it's the same thing over and over and over again. And Jesus destroys that. You've heard people say that before. Well, I mean, I've forgiven how many times? Or you know what? I've heard this before. I mean, none of you have ever said that, but I'm saying there's people who when someone has done the same thing over and over again, or maybe only two or three times, and probably not even in the same day, have made the excuse of, well, I've heard this before, and at some point I have to see action. You'd think after seven times maybe you would say that to them. You also notice that in Matthew's account, Peter doesn't say, how many times if my brother comes to me and repents? Don't believe the lie that someone's repentance is required for you to have a heart of forgiveness towards them. Your actions aren't dictated by somebody coming to you and owning what they did. They're dictated by the one who actually owns you. Forgive one another. Be kind-hearted and compassionate towards one another, forgiving each other, even as God forgave us in Christ. So, Peter the Great comes to him and says, how many times? Seven? Jesus says 70 times seven. He just puts an impossible number on it. Like, I don't even know if it's possible for your brother to sin against you 490 times in one day. Maybe it is. I wouldn't try to prove me wrong, but I'm just saying, like, that's a, that's a number. He's basically letting him know there's no end to the forgiveness that you're to show your brother. And, and, and so then he goes into this parable to teach them the point. And, and he says to him, he says, listen, just the kingdom of God's like this. There's two servants, or there's a servant that owes his master a debt that couldn't be paid. How many of you guys owed something that couldn't be paid? The perfect ones in the room that were born without sin are keeping their hands down like, oh, not me, heathens. This is the people, you, you guys, the ones who didn't raise your hand, you're the ones that, that John is talking about in 1 John when he says, if we say we have no sin, we make the word of God to be a liar. He's not saying that you're constantly sinning. He's saying if there's anybody out there that believes that they've never sinned and don't need the forgiveness of Jesus, that that's a lie. Okay? So every one of us owed a debt that was too much for us to pay. And so this servant finds himself in this place, and he encounters the heart of the master when the master says, okay, this is what you owe. And he says, give me some time and I'll repay it. Have mercy. And he experiences the heart of the master when the master says, it's all forgiven you. You don't owe me anything. And that servant then turns around and goes and finds someone that owes him a tiny fraction of what he owed. In other words, what was done to him was nothing compared to what was done, what he had done to the master. You realize, like, what's been done to you is nothing compared to what you have done to him. But you don't know what they did to me. You don't understand what you did to him. Because when you understand what you've done to him, it puts a whole different perspective on what people have done to you. But see, there was an expectation that came along with this forgiveness that was extended. 
And that was this, that the forgiveness wasn't simply just the removal of the debt. The forgiveness was the impartation of his heart. And I think what angered the, the father, who's the master in this story so much, was that somebody who didn't know what he was like encountered someone that did and walked away without experiencing what he was like. Someone who doesn't know the heart of the father encountered someone who did and walked away without experiencing what the father was like. That's the problem with unforgiveness against people. And we've taught this thing in a way where it's said, you know, that we make the, the focus that he gets thrown into jail and the tormentors come. And so we teach people, you know, forgiveness isn't for the other person. It's for you to let you out of prison so that you're not being tormented. I don't think that he ever expected that once the sun set you free, that you would be ever put back into a place of being in bondage and tormented. I don't think that that part of the story is telling people, Christians, people who are born again and carry the heart of God inside of them, that, you know, it's going to happen where you're just going to not forgive people, and then you're going to get thrown into prison, and the key to get out of prison is you going to forgive the person. So, so forgive them, because then you get set free. And that's how it's been taught sometimes, is the whole point of this thing is, well, you know, forgiving other people is actually letting you out of prison. I don't think God ever had any intention of you being in prison. I think he had every intention that if you actually understood what he did for you on the cross, there's no way that you wouldn't extend that freely to other people because freely you've received, now freely you give. And maybe if we're actually in prison and, and, and we're being tormented, it's because we haven't received from him the heart that he wants to give because if we did, there's no way that we wouldn't extend that to other people. See, we, we, we teach this thing from a selfish perspective. But we're supposed to have denied ourselves if we're following Jesus. So if life's not about me, how can I hold something against you? If any man would come after me, he must first deny himself, then take up his cross and follow me. If I'm following Jesus, I've already denied myself. How can I hold something against you if life's no longer about me? So I don't think that he ever had any intention of this being a get-out-of-jail-quick card or free card. I think what he was saying was basically when you've been changed by me, you'll never be held hostage and tormented again because when I come and set you free, you're free indeed. And when you actually get born again and you understand what I've done for you. See, the reason the unforgiving servant didn't do what, he was, what was expected of him is because he never understood what was done for him. And God's saying, listen, if that's the case, you still don't understand what it is to be forgiven. And then... They get put into prison and tormented. I don't think that God is actually in the business of taking us and physically putting us into prison. I'll be honest with you. I think that anybody who doesn't have the heart of the Father and walks in unforgiveness has already long been in a prison and long been tormented. And he said, and you'll be kept there until you repay what is owed. And then Paul comes along and tells us to owe no man anything but to love them. What if this whole story is basically letting us know 
that you're in prison and tormented until you actually become love and have love towards other people. And the minute you have love towards other people, you can never be imprisoned and tormented by their action or lack of action again because you're not alive for you. You're alive to see them know him because you had an encounter with the Father. There's every expectation that when people encounter you, they'll see what he's like. That's the biggest, the, the whole biggest crime of this whole thing. And it's not about the, 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 the money. It's not about the, the size of the debt. It's that somebody that experienced what he was like didn't have, let that experience actually change them. It became a prayer that they prayed one day, but it never became who they are. It was never about becoming a new creation. It was about one day I'm going to go to heaven when I die. The problem with that is, is that our goal isn't that we, that we say a prayer and then go back to living life the way we did before the prayer. The prayer is us understanding that who we are has to die so that who he is can become who we've become. And we become born again, a new creation in Christ. And then Ephesians says, now you be kind and compassionate to each other, forgiving each other, even as God in Christ forgave us. What's he saying? There should be an, a heart of forgiveness that beats inside of you to where it's not even an option of whether I'm going to forgive you or not, because I gave up the right to hold unforgiveness when I accepted his righteousness, because I traded my rights for his righteousness. Like, I don't even think Jesus was thinking that this was going to happen to people who are born again. I think what he's doing is saying, listen, here's an easy way to know if you've actually received the fullness of salvation from the Father. It's that when you're put into a situation like his, but not even like his because it's so minor compared to the one that you were in with him, you'll respond the way that he does. And if you don't, your life is going to be trapped and you're going to be tormented until you actually become the thing that he paid on the cross for you to become. Why would we reduce that to, you know, forgiveness isn't for other people, it's for you. And make it a selfish thing where people are actually trying to forgive people because they want to get out of jail rather than they want to forgive people because they've become forgiveness. It's about becoming like him. It's not acting like him. He became sin. I know we say this a lot, but I don't think we understand the depth of this statement that he became sin, that knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It's about becoming something, not acting like something. He didn't act sinful so you could act righteous. He became sin so that you could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. If you've become something, then every action will flow from what you've become because it's not something you're doing, it's who you are. And what prompted me to even dig into this to begin with, and I'm going to close with this and we're going to, we're going to take communion and remind ourselves of the great forgiveness that was shown to us, is we were, um, we were talking to some people and they had come to us and, and they, had, they had confessed some stuff that had gone on and I can honestly say this. There was no place in our hearts that even wanted, like, they were already forgiven before they confessed. Like, literally, the second I heard about what had happened, my heart towards them was forgiveness and grace. And I'm not saying that to boast because I can't do that on my own. It's only He that can change my heart and make me that way. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God living inside of me, producing the character and nature of God so that what flows from me looks like what's flowed into me. 
And so uh, we were talking to them, and at one point, one of them looked at us, and, and they said, you know, I just, I don't understand how you can just so easily show grace when you know things that were done. How is it that you can just so easily show this kind of grace to us? And the question hit me so foreign. And not there was anything wrong with the person saying the question. I think they were genuinely like, you know, wondering that. But it, it sounded so foreign when I heard that because I was thinking to myself when I heard it, how else would I respond? And that's one of those times when you go home and you get alone with him and you worship and you weep and you say, God, you have changed me. Because in that moment, literally, the thought inside of me, I wasn't trying to muster it up. I wasn't trying to be a pastor. I wasn't trying to be a Christian. I wasn't thinking, what does the scripture say? What should my response be? I wasn't. I literally thought in my head, how else would I respond but with grace? And I looked at them and I said, I don't think maybe you understand what I've been forgiven of myself. But I'm pretty aware of everything that I've done and what it cost him. I would, it would be insane of me to even think about holding what you've done against you when he's not holding what I've done against me. That's what came out of my mouth. With, with, with no like thought of, of what's the Christian thing to say. This is what I'm saying, you guys. Like, I'm not holding myself up. Look, I'm not a perfect person. I mess up. I get frustrated when I shouldn't. I get angry when I shouldn't. I let things, I, I, I'm tempted to take things the wrong way or to read something into something that's said the way it shouldn't be. I hate that, and I, and I know God's working on my heart in that, and, I, and I'm, I'm better than I was yesterday, and I'm becoming more like him, and tomorrow I'll be better at it than I am today because I'm becoming more and more like him. And, I, and, and as I see him, I become like him. And I, I promise you, like, I, I don't always get it right, but I can say this. Like, this gospel is transforming our hearts. It's changing us. It's not just something we do. It's who we've become. To the point where when someone asked that question, literally, it was as if they were speaking Chinese. I didn't understand why on earth that someone would even ask you that. But here's the problem. Far too many Christians have given ourselves a right to walk in unforgiveness. We even said things like, well, you know, it says in one part of the Bible that if my brother comes to me and repent, I should forgive him. You know what? Matthew left it out on purpose. The Spirit of God had Matthew leave that out on purpose. Why? Because it doesn't require anything from somebody for you to walk in forgiveness towards them. All it requires is you to understand what was done for you and allow that to change your heart so that your heart becomes like his. So when you look at someone and you say, I forgive you, look, repentance is a big deal. Don't get me wrong. Like if you've done something to somebody and wronged them, go to them and repent. I'm not saying that like we don't go to each other. We should go to each other and own what we've done wrong. That's for 100% sure. But when we say, I forgive you, it's not that your admission of what you did was wrong somehow changed my heart from unforgiveness to forgiveness, and now I forgive you because of what you've done. I don't forgive you because of what you've done. I forgive you because of what he's done. When I say I forgive you, I'm just letting you know what's always been in my heart anyways. 
It's not me going, oh, okay, well, I was walking in unforgiveness. I did have anger and rage and malice and all that built up inside of me. Listen, in, in Ephesians, right before he talks about forgiving one another, he says this. He says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Here's the other side of that coin. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ, just as in Christ God forgave you. You notice he ties anger and slander and brawling and malice and all that to actual having unforgiveness. He says, don't do this, do this. Why? Because if I forgive you, and I'm, my, the kindness and compassion of God is being shown to you by me, I'm not going to be angry at you. Why? Because I'm not holding your sin against you. I'm not taking account of a wrong suffered. This doesn't mean that we act like nothing is wrong. Like right before this, and I, I'm, am I running out of time? No, we've got time. You notice right before this, the, the thing he talks about right before he talks about forgiveness is if your brother sins against you, go to them and confront them. If he repents, you've won your brother. If not, go with two or three. If he still won't listen, then bring him before the church. You realize, like, like saying that we have a heart and a position of forgiveness towards people doesn't mean that we don't see when someone's done something wrong, but you're not going to them out of your anger and your need for them to see what they did is wrong for you to be okay. You're going to them because you love them and you want to see them not walk in the fruit of disobedience and because you realize the wages of sin is death and you love them more than you love your own comfort. So you're willing to go to them and talk to them about what's going on out of a heart of love for them, not out of a heart of anger. And if they don't repent, you don't walk away holding on to anger anger and unforgiveness. Your heart was already of forgiveness before you went to them, or you shouldn't go to begin with. Because if you're going out of anger and there's something in their response that will fix you, listen, someone needs to hear this. If you, if them repenting will somehow fix something in you, don't go to them, go to him. And let him bring you to the place where you're fixed so that you can then go to them out of love, not out of need. Because if you're going to them out of anger and out of need, when they don't respond the right way, you're still broken. And if they do respond the right way, and then you are okay because of their response, what you're saying is my ability to be okay has nothing to do with what Jesus did for me and has everything to do with you correctly responding when you do something wrong. That's a lot of power to put in the hands of another person. That's a lot of authority to hand over to people. I bet he never intended for us to be that way. That's why he said speaking the truth in love, not in anger. You know, so much for that whole, like, it's okay to be angry all day, just don't go to sleep angry. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. (laughs) He doesn't say get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, except for the kind that you have at somebody else during the day, but you make sure to get rid of before the sun goes down. You know, Jesus said, you've heard it said, not to kill your brother. If you do, you're guilty of murder before the courts. But I tell you, if you have anger towards your brother, you are guilty and liable before the court. How much of that anger you think is okay if he said having anger towards your brother is equal to murder? It's not all right. You know why? Because the reason that you're angry, the reason that you're bitter, the reason that you slander, the reason for all these things is because you have unforgiveness in your heart. And the reason you have unforgiveness in your heart is because you don't understand the forgiveness that you've received from him. And once you understand what was done for you, you'll never again give yourself the right to not extend that to other people. And that's what this story is about. 
This parable is about you becoming like him so that when people encounter you, they see what he's like. Somebody that doesn't know the Father runs into someone who does. They should always walk away knowing what he's like. Because if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That was Jesus' statement, but then Jesus said, as the Father sent me into the world, so I also send you. And Jesus said, I came to reveal the Father. That means that he came to show people what the Father was like, and then he said, if the Father sent me into the world, how did the Father send him into the world? Out of love and to show the world what he's like. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. He came because God loved you, and he came to show you what the loving Father looked like. And then Jesus says, the same way the Father sent me, so I also send you. So God, I just pray, listen, if you are holding right now any unforgiveness in your heart, like I'm not going to give you the whole like, hey, this is for you, not for them. You need to forgive them so you get set free from jail. No, no, it's deeper than that. It's saying there's a place in his heart of getting alone with him and understanding the forgiveness that you've received and how complete it is. You want to know that the people that hold unforgiveness against people are the people who don't truly believe their own forgiveness? When you understand that you stand before him, holy, blameless, upright, and beyond reproach, you have no problem extending forgiveness to other people. But if you don't believe that, you don't understand that, it hasn't become real to you, then you may have a hard time forgiving other people. So if you're holding unforgiveness right now, like I, like I said, I, I don't want this to be like a, for your sake, forgive them so that you can get set out of prison. No, listen, because here's the point. If you forgive them to get out of prison, it's like loving your enemy to heap coals upon their head. It doesn't really work that way. You don't go to them with a need and forgive them to get your need met. You go to them with an answer and forgive them so that they can see the answer too. So I would say if you're holding unforgiveness in your heart towards anybody right now, you're already being tormented. And you're already living in a prison because you're not totally free. Why? Because that person has a say in how you're doing. And whom the sun sets free is free indeed. And I would just ask, like, before we even come up and take communion, just ask God, God, show me what it is that I'm not seeing. Show me what it costs you. Don't let a drop of that blood be wasted. show this a lot, but I, I just, I don't know a better way to describe it. It says that the record that was hostile against us was wiped out when they nailed him to the tree. It says the record that was hostile against us was nailed to the tree with Christ. And I, I, maybe you've heard this before. If you've been here for a while, you have. But I just want you to just picture, like, this thing right here being the record that was hostile. This has one thing written on it. Ours would be a whole lot worse. Mine would be pages and pages long. They'd have to roll that sucker up to get it behind his hand. But just think about this. If you take paper and you wrote everything that you did on it, everything that you've ever done wrong, take a scroll, write it down. Take ink and just write it down. This is the record that was hostile against you. This means this is what the enemy would come and he'd open up this record and he'd start accusing you. And it was hostile against you. It was everything that you've done wrong. It was every means of accusation. It was everything that you had done that was fallen short of the glory of God. And there's this record out there, this paper record, and the enemy could just accuse you based upon it. And suddenly Jesus comes and he says, I'll take all of those, please. 
And it says that it was nailed with him to the cross. And just think about this. They take that record and they put it against the cross. They don't realize they're doing that. If they knew what they were doing, they never would have done it. They take his hand, they put it on top of that record, on top of that paper. They drive a nail through his hand. Usually they hang them, but if they, if they tie his hands to it, the blood doesn't soak into that paper and saturate that paper. They think they're being cruel. They think they're being mean. They think that they're punishing him and doing to him what should never be done to a human being, and they don't even understand what they're doing. And they put the nail through his hand, and blood starts to pour from his hand. And as it does, it just soaks up first that dry paper that was there that had everything you'd ever done written on it. And it just flows and flows and flows and flows, and it saturates that paper, and it begins to drip to the ground, and every drop brings a little bit of ink with it as one more charge against you falls to the ground. And the blood of Jesus silences the blood of Abel, which forever cries out from the ground as mercy triumphs over judgment. And they take him off that cross, and they don't realize it because they can't see it, but in the spirit realm, there literally is every single accusation that would ever be made against you was on a paper, a record that was hostile against you, and it was nailed with him. And they take him off the cross, and they don't see it, but a billion scrolls go falling to the ground, soaked in the blood of Jesus, and along comes the enemy, and he wants to make accusation against you. And he looks around, and he says, oh, where's Tim's record? There it is. And he grabs it, and he's going to come, and he's going to make, rec- make accusation against you, and he's going to tell you about everything that you've done wrong and why you're undeserving and all the things that he could accuse you for. And he opens that scroll up, and he sees nothing but blood yes. where the record of crime used to be. And all he can see is that the blood of Jesus has completely, once for all, covered your sin. And the record that was hostile against you is gone, and all that's there is his blood. That's what we're celebrating. See, you read your Bible and you realize, like, these things are real. This is the record that was hostile against you, was nailed to the cross with Christ. So, Father, I just thank you for that. I thank you that if we've allowed ourselves any right to hold something against somebody that you've never, God, if we've taken a right higher than the right that you've given yourself, You guys, it says in the word, now we see that God was through Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer holding their sins against them. If he is no longer holding people's sin against them, then why would we ever give ourselves the right to do so and set ourselves as a higher authority than him? So Father, I thank you if we've given ourselves that right, that you would just come right now, God, and just blast that away with your love. God, that we would have a full understanding of the grace that was shown to us. Father, I pray that right now nobody's heart would be hardened, God, that nobody would hold on to anything. That even if it's a process of walking out, that the the end result is settled in our heart today. That my posture of my heart and my position towards people is forgiveness and grace. before they even know what they did was wrong, and if they never know that what they did was wrong, God. I'll just choose to be like Jesus and say, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Why would you wait for someone to know what they're doing and repent to forgive them when he looked out and said, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. 
I just thank you for that, God. I thank you that we would become transformed by this gospel, that people that encounter us would see what you're like. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.